welcome back to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. We are kicking off season two. It is 2021, y'all, and we are kicking off in high gear. We are excited to share the space with you to tell stories, educate, motivate, and move. Join me, your host, Takima Robinson, every week for real conversations as we pull back the curtain on social justice and philanthropy in America. Hello, everybody. So excited to have you back with us. Last time we spoke, we talked about where do we go from here? And now is the time to rise with the chief of staff, Hillary Roach. In that episode, we talked a lot about Converge and who this organization is and started talking with you all about the work that we do to work on white supremacy organizational culture in small and medium-sized organizations and really the struggles that many of these organizations are having around racism and systemic oppression um, and just really how many folks are just struggling to have that conversation in workplaces and boardrooms, but also the work that we do here at Converge. And we prepared a launch for Converge College, which is a 12-week offering that helps you build a racial and intersectional equity plan and assessment of your organization, and then a plan to move your organization forward. We want to continue by bringing you more of our amazing staff to talk with you about the work that we do, how that can be a to your organization. All right. So today you're going to get a sneak peek into what our first lesson will be about racial and intersectional equity 101, history, culture, and values. And I'm going to be joined today by Lucicita, also known as Lucy Castillo. She is a associate consultant with Converge. She has a strong background in education, organizational development, and diversity and equity. She brings 25 years of experience within her roles as chief equity officers for a small nonprofit in Washington, D.C. She also joined Teach for America and taught middle school in New York City, has held leadership positions with a number of exceptional institutions, including the New York State Education Department, Teach for America New York, and Coro New York. She shifted her work in adult education at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, where she served as a leader of the Office of Organizational Development and Training. She also joined the City University of New York School of Professional Studies to manage a statewide governance training program. And in 2011, she became the executive director of Citizen Schools, an out-of-school time program. Prior to her current role, she worked for Teach for America, where she focused on the organization's executives. She has been with Converge since 2017. Hi, Lucy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. We're excited to have you here, and I'm excited for the conversation today. So we all just heard about your amazing resume and professional experience, but can you tell the audience before we get started a little something about you that we might not know from your bio? What you might not know is that um, I love food and travel. This is true. Um, I like to get to know people over wonderful food and wine. And if we can do that in a, des- on a, in a destination that required us to get on a plane, even better. But that's, that's sort of how I unwind and that's how I connect with folks. Absolutely. We have shared many a meal together. So I am really excited to have you on this show. And as our audience knows, we are really starting to dig deep into Converge's racial and intersectional equity work. And we want to use this uh, podcast time today to really kind of level set 
and understand kind of where we're coming from around this topic. And today I want to go into um, this concept of an anti-racist organization even further with you. And as you all heard from our bio, Lucy works closely with Converge and lots of our nonprofit partners, helping them to really implement racial and intersectional equity and operationalize that inside of their organizations. So Luce, let's talk a little bit about kind of where a lot of organizations start on their journey, right? So when folks are calling us and inquiring about this work or have some interest into leaning into this work, you know, what do you normally hear in some of those initial conversations? Oftentimes there's some triggering event that causes the conversation to happen. It could be internal to the organization, right? There was um, some level of aggression or something that happened internally. Um, or it could even be that folks started having conversation, two or three people, and they start talking about systemic racism and those kinds of things as it pertains to their work or to their organization. And then the other is usually something external happened. So there was this flood, a tsunami of of, you know, support requests after George Floyd or all of the protests around Black Lives Matter over this past summer, even though these have been things that have been happening um, since the beginning of our time in this country. But it's usually some triggering event that creates a spark, usually with a small group of people um, internally that want to start the conversation. Yeah. And that's so in interesting that you talk about a small group of people because usually it does. It's usually one or a few folks who start to see the same thing at the same time um, and really start to pressure the organization or create demand inside or speak up on these topics that usually sparks folks to reach out to us or begin their journey around this work. But, you know, you know, one or two people does not make a whole organization. And the work we're talking about is not only work that needs to happen inside of organizations, companies, groupings of people, but also inside of the individual themselves. You know, and so there's a lot of work on this journey to be anti-racist that begins at the individual level and then it's animated even more as we think about how we work together inside of these formations of people, organizations, companies, etc. So talk a little bit about, you know, some of your ex experience working with organizations who want to start this work. Um, what are some of... Um, you know, the fears or concerns or challenges that many of the um, companies and organizations we work with bring to the table? Uh, there's a couple of things that come and in some instances, they'll have all of them. In some, it'll be one or two. But one thing that I notice is that folks want there to be an action, a do, a quick, a now, right? So they're expecting, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give them a presentation, I'm going to give them some coaching, and next week, they are going to all be cured. They're going to be fine. Um, the other concern I often get is that there's a concern about being performative, that what we're going to do may not feel authentic, um, and they are concerned about it feeling that way. Um, an additional issue is that this feels additive 
Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't feel like the work. This feels like a nice to have or an optional or an elective thing, especially for people who, for whatever reasons, are resisting. Um, and so it's sort of, I can't focus on that because I have to, you know, fill in the blank as to what my deliverables are, or what my function is, and my level in the organization and how important that is. And this just seems like an added thing to my plate. And again, often that is resistance, but it's it's real, right? Um, so we get that. And then the last thing sort of connected to the first is that we want it to be immediate. We want it to be quick and people not fully understanding that this is not work that ever ends. Yeah. And so giving them that perspective, um, I think is often important. And the other, and lots of these go against like white dominant culture, white supremacy culture, is that it's not linear work. And mm-hmm. so when I come in and I'm talking about what the process, the emergent process or the intended process is, oftentimes people when they're putting lots of money and other resources behind something, they want me to be able to say, and so by March 15th and by April 15th and then by June, and I don't know if that's going to happen. And organizations and people often travel or circuitous route with this, right? You take two steps forward and then something pulls you back. In addition to that, there's also the external things that are happening and the work that has to happen in the organization. And so, you know, the, the, the connection and the intersection of all of those things often don't make for a clean, crisp, tidy, uh, smooth process. And no process is like that, I would say, in an organization. We delude ourselves into believing that. And because this is often something folks don't want to do or a little bit skeptical or apprehensive, they're pulling on anything that they can um, to often uh, uh, critique the work or to resist the work. And so telling folks up front, like, you know, buckle in, it's going to be a ride. It won't be, you know, linear. It won't be direct and it won't always be smooth, I think is is something to help them um, yeah. prepared for the journey. And you won't always be comfortable in it, right? Like the only thing I can think about that's super similar to this journey is therapy, <laughs> right? That, that uncovering the discomfort of sitting in truth that we have avoided the two steps back and the one, the two steps forward and one step back process. And I do think um, particularly the way in which white institutional culture works, we really want something linear. We want to check the box, etc. But that is not what this work is. It's culture change work. You know, let's dig in some more because on the last episode, I talked about white institutional culture and I talked about the irony that we want to undo. Um, the thing that white supremacy created, right? That racism and white supremacy created by using the same tools. The master's house, the master's tools can't dismantle the master's house, but we still want to approach this work deeply embedded in white institutional culture, right? So that's often where organizations start, right? They want to do this, but they, the, the only way they know how to be in relationship to one another or in relationship to power or resources um, or leadership is through white institutional culture. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about white supremacy culture, white institutional culture, and how that shows up inside of organizations. I know we have like 10,000 ways, but can we highlight two or three or four ways this starts to show up in organizations, particularly when they're ready to start this journey? 
Um, one that I'll pull in, and it's it's in the in the characteristics, um, and that's worship of the written word. Mm-hmm. And I often then connect that to data. Um, and I'll more specifically say uh, quantitative data. Mm-hmm. And so I often find, and again, we because to your point, we've got to speak people's language or dialect to get them on board. We always show them data in the beginning. Let's show you the data of right. organizations like yours, of your own organization, because the numbers will give or racial outcomes. Right? Yes, well, they'll be able to anchor on them. Um, but the challenge often is that they're not waiting in the same way or even tracking and capturing in the same way the qualitative data so when you have five black colleagues five black uh gay colleagues telling you about their lived experience for some reason that isn't as powerful or as real as the numbers that say something about you know we have 10 leaders of departments that are people of color or that are trans or that or whatever right um and so the worship of the written word also how you know they're going to push you to have everything written down or to have the linear process written down um and i think that serves to disconnect them from their own experience in organizations to disconnect them from each other and to to keep us from sitting with, as you said, when you pull back those layers, you uncover stuff, you discover stuff, stuff is revealed and you are like, is this true? Is this real? And that push to sit in it, to see it and to name it um, outside of what the data says sometimes, I think is one of the hardest things for people to do. I can read something and respond to it. I can, you know, uh, read the research, conduct the research. But when I just have to sit and listen to another person's experience of me, of my organization, or when I am forced to sit and name things and call things out that I've been a part of, that I've witnessed, that I've perpetrated and experienced, it's a whole nother. And it gets to that point you mentioned of of the organization just being made up of people. Mm -hmm. And because white supremacy culture cuts us off from all of our humanity, like feelings don't belong at work and all of it, it's often the first time that people have had the permission or the task to just go sit and listen to yourself. And and it requires uh, heart work, not necessarily head work, which is where the data resides, right? And I had a mentor um, who I always lift up in these conversations who told me uh, liars figure and figures lie, right? And we're also in the age of alternative facts. So Mm. we have learned that facts and data and truth is really not it. That's a smokescreen that is often used to resist having to sit in our heart space and not just our head space around all of this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's definitely one worship of the written word. What other characteristics of, of white supremacy organizational culture do you think are present, particularly in this moment that we have to help organizations push through as they start thinking about um, getting on this racial and intersectional yeah. equity journey. Yeah, I had this conversation uh, just yesterday, um, but sort of this sense of urgency, what I like to call <laughs> manufactured urgency. And so in thinking about all of these things, however long your organization has been around, however you know long all of that has been happening, you have been baking and stewing in all of this. And so to expect that 
it's going to happen overnight. And again, going back to how circuitous and back and forth the journey is, that sense of urgency, which again, sometimes is an often an attempt to say, oh, see, it's not working. It, it, this was supposed to happen last week. We were all supposed to be cured, right? And so off, that lens, that layer, that film, that folks try to force on this kind of work that is so counter, and it has to be counter um, to, to how they normally behave, how they normally think and act, that I think that sometimes that one is one. And it could also seem like, um, you know, I went to this, you know, session on uh, implicit bias, and it was only two hours. Like, why are you telling me I'm going to need two, three months or six months or years to be able to do this work? And so just those, uh, that perception of understanding about change, about what deep, reflective personal work and interpersonal work requires just to me underscores how unclear and how unclued in we are to ourselves as human beings and each other that it it requires a muscle that most of us most of them no most of us are not used to exercising yeah definitely I, I would say across the board so it's also really interesting to me and I, I we work with a range of organizations from you know, very mainstream organizations to organizations who have declared themselves to be progressive, et cetera. And, you know, we introduce in our work um, the anti-racist organization continuum, which goes from organizations who are very exclusive and clear about that. They publicly exclude people of color. Um, They want to continue to enforce the racial status quo, and they maintain an allegiance unapologetically to white supremacy, right? And so that's like the far end. We can put the Proud Boys and those types of groups in that type of category, right? Then we move forward to passive organizations. They're tolerant, particularly of maybe people of color who have credentials. They intentionally maintain white supremacy, their policies and practices. They may declare they don't have a problem, but they're very, very much committed to their culture as is. Mm -hmm. It is a like our way or the highway. Like we have no real interest in um, necessarily changing you know, on a very deep level. Um, Then we talk about symbolic change. And so these are organizations who have said, you know, publicly, you know, we want to change. We don't want to be a racist organization. Um, And oftentimes it's those organizations that are calling us that have Mm -hmm. begun to lean into this work or maybe even have put things out there publicly that they need to back up internally. And in a lot of places, we find that folks' external proclamations are very um, far very shallow right of uh, the internal their own internal practices but again they're interested um they're making these proclamations but they have not done the deep work internally we see identity change happen next and those are those organizations who are starting to lean in they are probably working with a converge or other type of consultant in this space they've begun to develop some accountability with communities and are really actively bringing people of color into um, leadership positions um, but again internally their you know employees maybe their um, stakeholders have not quite experienced the change yet mm-hmm. um, and then I think the next two levels are really like 
the far end where we're pushing folks to go, structural change, right? We have now made some policy changes. We have ch looked at our structures, our policies, our practices, and really started thinking deeply about those um, and ensuring full participation of people of color, making sure there's accountability around that. We haven't arrived, but we are leaning in. We are doing this work. We have worked up a sweat, right? <laughs> and then the final, final, final um, kind of level, right? There are levels to this, is the fully inclusive, anti-racist, multicultural organization. That is that... Um, vision of an institution, a community, a world where we have overcome systemic racism and oppression. I've yet to find that organization, Lucy. Um, even with some of the super uber progressive organizations. And I think that speaks to what you said about the circular nature of this work, that it is a process. Because when we talk about white supremacy um, and the way it shows up, not just in white people, but also people mm -hmm. of color is deeply embedded into our institutions, right? It is going to take generations to really yeah. root that out to um, and, and create these spaces. So that's the continuum um, that that we share. What are what are your thoughts about that continuum? I know we're constantly trying to work on our theories and 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 methodologies and tools. But what are some of your reflections on that? And, and where do you think the stickiness is on that continuum for organizations? Yeah. So I think I find that most organizations, even the ones that come, mostly the ones that come, I. I'm thinking about proposals or RFPs that I've looked at over the last couple of days, right? And and most of them are in that passive or symbolic. Mm -hmm. And these are the folks that when we say like DEI, these are the folks that's happy in the D. We happy in the D. Look, we right. can point to people. We got we one of folks. We got, <laughs> right. We done, we went, went shopping. We got a Latina. We good. We are good. Um, and so I would say lots of people are there and then moving slowly into the symbolic change, right? And so they're talking maybe about um, inclusiveness, but it hasn't really gotten to the point where we're really thinking about changing ourselves and changing our structures and how we make decisions. And so I think that's one of the hardest things for organizations is that they have to let go of the power, they have to let go of the control. And that's the hardest thing, thing for individuals to be able to do. It's the hardest thing then for organizations to do because what are the implications? What does it mean to our mission? What does it mean to our stakeholders, to our funders, if we dig into this work? Mm -hmm. And, you know, working in the nonprofit space, um, of course, yes, lots of funders are funding some of this work, but they themselves and in, in the way they run their organizations, but also what they're requiring for the grants, say, that they give out are things that perpetuate this kind of systemic racist, um, mm -hmm. exclusive um, behavior in the first place. And it maintains that. So I think the hardest thing is, is for them to say, like, I don't care about how many people you have in your organization that identify as this. I don't care. What are your policies, practices, your procedures and your structures and what are your outcomes? And so until we can get that, it's not about the people that are in seat right now. And because I work with boards a lot, I'm always talking about like, how are you getting this into your bylaws so that it lives beyond who's currently in the seat? So changing those structures and changing 
those literally the rules of engagement have to be what we're thinking about um, because the mindsets may not come for everybody, right? Like there's going to be some folks up in here, if it's a normal curve, some people were on the bus and on it and that, that was them far right. Most folks are in the middle, but there are going to be some people who really want to stay where they are and don't want to change and don't believe in rise at all. Like y'all rise over there. I'm going to stay over here. Um, and so I think it's really hard for folks to understand that this is not about tinkering on the edges. Uh-huh. It's about, as you Wholesale. said, before, it's about being really uncomfortable because these are things many people have not been aware of, have not dug into, have not indicted themselves around and how it goes from everything to who my kids play with and who their physician is to the magazines and the books I read, the mo- like it's everything. And so when that veil gets lifted, it can be really scary, um, but it indicts everything and everything has to be up for examination. And I, I don't off- I don't think that people often realize that everything's on the table. We're going to look at everything. You have to continue to look at everything. And I think that all encompassing everything kind of sometimes makes people, you know, want to push away from the table. But that's, I think, the role that we play is to to be their partner and and give them the support, the encouragement or the push to stay at the table and to push through it. Yeah. I mean, we often talk about white supremacy as the air we breathe. Right. Mm-hmm. It's an, it is it is in everything. Like you said, it all has to be on the table and reexamined. Um, and I know even in myself, it is continual work. I find mm-hmm. little pockets like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, didn't realize I still had to work on that piece of it. And I teach this work and I coach yeah. this work. Right. It is really a lifelong enterprise. So I kind of want us to to pan out a little bit because we are in such interesting historical times and we can't ignore what is happening all around us. And it was super interesting when you first opened, you were talking about, um, again, the circular nature of this work, two steps forward, a step back. And then you mentioned George Floyd. And I think a lot about January 6th as well, as in there are also these moments, right, (laughs) where, um, you know, the the external um, zeitgeist demands that we do have a quantum leap in this work. And I really think that that's where we are when it comes to race and racism. I think we are at a significant crossroads. We are experiencing the death cry of white supremacy, Um, you know, prayerfully, you know, that will be nonviolent. But if history is anything um, to inform, to inform us, it won't be right. So not surprised by the violence that we are now naming as domestic uh, terrorism based in and rooted in white supremacy. Um, So, you know, our phone is ringing off the hook. A lot of folks want to jump into this work. And like you said, a lot of these folks find themselves really at the beginning of the journey, the beginning of the continuum. Um, And we're here to support you all as as you really want to dig in. Um, So how has some of the events of the past year changed the conversations you feel like you're able to have with our clients? Interestingly. It has, what I will say is it's changed the frequency and the volume, but the conversation hasn't shifted that significantly, right? Like I'm getting folks to say like, yeah, uh, we know we need to have the conversation, but a lot of times it's not an internal 
I deeply feel and I know we need to have the conversation. It's these things have happened and I'm in a room or in a space where other people are saying it has to happen. So I'm going <laughs> along with it. Um, but I still think there's the resistance. I still have boards that are saying no to a, you know, a Black Lives Matter uh, statement or pushing back on a Black CEO. Um, people have, you know, sort of you overstepped the the hierarchy. I mean, you know, I'm not that big of a fan of hierarchy, but because, you know, they don't appreciate the way this black leader is leading and they're going to the board. So there's still all of the foul, crazy stuff that was happening before is still happening now. I just think that perhaps in a performative way, perhaps in a more uh, authentic way, more people are coming because more people are coming, right? And unfortunately, it feels like uh, it's the trend. Now, if it's the trend, just like anything else, oh, it's a trend, but I, it looks cute on me, it works on me, then that's great. But if the trend is just because, you know, it's a performative surface thing, that's not great. Um, so I think it's changed the frequency. I think it's changed the volume of the calls, but the concerns, the questions, and the resistance is still the same. Um, yeah. I mean, I see also in organizations where there might be a younger demographic in a lot of sense, they might be the folks pushing it. Um, there are lots of different reasons, but but the same concerns, trepidations, worries, fears are still there. They have not gone away. Lucy, you brought up an important point. This generational thing is really become a thing inside mm -hmm. of this work, right? Like I'm finding particularly young white, what we would call woke um, folks inside these organizations are often the loudest voices around around this topic, you know? And so, you know, as I think about the types of organizations that we work with, what I tell folks a lot is like, you know, this is where it's going, right? Like, and you will be judged um, based on how, as a leader, how you respond to this moment. Mm -hmm. And I really do believe, and, and I'm grateful for the ways in which young people, millennials are pushing the organizations that they're in. They are not about this life, right? Mm -hmm. like, um, and I think they're also the reason why we're seeing such a pushback because we also know that demography is destiny, um, whether that be people of color who um, are increasing in numbers and population, but also just young progressive white folks who um, are really interested in another way to be in the world. Um, and so I also think there's a real interesting generational context to this work. When I say generational, I mean white, black, Latinx, all of that, older generations of professionals who in many ways learned to survive inside of white institutional culture. Mm -hmm. It is deeply embedded in them. It is the way that they were professionalized and raised in this work. We often... Um, exalt, right, mm -hmm. aspects of white institutional culture as what professional culture should be, i.e. worship of the written word, right? So it's also really interesting to see some of the generational rifts, even within racial categories around mm -hmm. this push. And um, yeah, what are your reflections on that? 
I, I mean, I think it's great. I think overwhelmingly, you know, being um, in the New York metro area all summer long seeing, I mean, I think that was the thing that was most encouraging was that the folks I saw marching were incredibly diverse. I don't recall seeing, I mean, we knew the names of the photographers and, you know, white folks who, you know, stood in solidarity, um, you know, uh, through civil rights and even to the current day, but to see throngs or even just white led groups coming out and, and, and doing that kind of thing. So I think that that is encouraging, but as you mentioned, and, and what's been interesting, especially on TikTok, is seeing, you know, a 20 something with their parent at odds in terms of what happened on January 6th, um, President Trump, President Biden, all of that stuff. Um, so it's been really interesting to see that there's this fearlessness and there's this knowing that they are on the right side of history that I think they are armed with and they are just bold with. And I think it's super exciting. Um, but at the same time, I can't dismiss everywhere I go. I meet someone who's 60 or 70, who's white, who's Indian, who's whatever. And they are about that life too and have been. You know, A friend just you know mentioned, a friend, Audrey, her dad passed away recently and she talked about how him being an older white man, but he this is what he at least um, learn to be or grew into understanding that this was the way that the world should be, right? Um, and so there are those folks, but I would say generationally young people and even young ones, as, as young as our little ones, right? Like right. we have had to have conversations with them about this stuff. And, and, and Zachary, who used to, you know, want to be a policeman, mm -hmm. now talks about the things that policemen have done, right? Like, and probably won't want to do that. Um, we know he probably has other designs on things. But um, but having that awareness and that awakening of young people, I think is is super encouraging. That analysis, right? Like even the babies have an analysis. Um, so I'm excited about this future generation and the way in which um, they are pushing us. Um, and I really hope that the leaders that we get that we we get to the privilege of working with um, start to listen to that because that change is coming whether we want it or not and I think those of us who are in leadership roles at this point again history is going to judge how we use yeah. our roles and our platforms in this moment. Um, so last but not least, and I, I don't want to undercut this concept of intersectionality, um, because we don't just talk about being an anti-racist organization, but an organization that is really able to um, embrace inclusivity in all the various, the ways in which people show up, sexuality, gender, ethnicity, et cetera. Um, and I really do think that that's the vanguard of the work is, uh, you know, I think it is anchored by anti-racism, especially in the American context. But I also believe that if we can figure out um, anti-racism inside of that, we can also figure out a way to hold space for all of our identities. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work, particularly on LGBTQ issues, or even thinking about ethnicity as an Afro-Latina. Um, so just talk a little bit about how this concept of internet intersectionality um, is also stretching you as a practitioner. Yeah, I think we have to, we do not have a choice but to tackle intersectionality and as a woman of color lgbtq gender identity is one for us for many reasons that is just so deep 
And we just have to get underneath that. And we have to get clear that it's not okay because there are all of these gender um, rules, norms, expectations, right? Like unheard of a woman, um, I believe it was in New York City, was attacked coming home from work. Saw that. Getting some wine to wine down. The compliments, quote unquote, or the advances, interest uh, lofted at her by men. Um, I'm using that term loosely, almost killed, annihilated her spirit, I'm sure, at least for a time being, right? And so when you see things like that happening in 2021 um, and, and anything on social media or out in the street, California, two young Black trans women were attacked, like there's stuff that we have not dealt with and there's pathologies that run deep. And I think we have to get under that. And as you were saying before about, you know, this is the vanguard, this is where it's going. I think about it, um, you know, I grew up in a time, I'm going to age myself, where we had like Sony Walkmans and I still listen to cassettes and I still, you know, listen to uh, vinyl. And in calling leaders, and that's everybody in an organization, into this moment, um, because the same way you're not, you know, making mimeograph sheets or sending faxes. Right. And if that's still the way you want to work, you're not going to be working. <laughs> not going to be competitive. Not going to be competitive. And so my push is all of what you said, right? Like the future is brown. It's black. It's straight. Straight. It's gay. It's trans. It's asexual. It's it's everything. It's able. It's temporarily able. Dis- like it's all of that. And it has always been, but we've never allowed that to be centered. We've never allowed all of who people are to be centered. And so it's for me in terms of, my just my life but in terms of organizations it's calling you to the kind of leadership the level of leadership the type of leadership that is going to be i believe the only leadership going forward and so the same way you wouldn't resist if there was a a, a migration to a different technology or a migration to, to a different way of you know finance or bookkeeping or whatever you would have to rise to the occasion and then and similarly there'd be support you know folks like us would come in and be like this is what yeah. it's going to be like this is what you can expect but the right. same way you can't say no i'm not going to use my computer or no like you you can say that, but understand what the consequences are going to be, be left behind. Implications of that. So if you're wanting to be left behind, okay. If you're wanting to be left behind, okay. Only, um, you know, don't don't uh, take into account someone's gender identity. Don't take into account ability. I would say with all the boards, I've worked with boards for years, and I would say in all of the years, in at least the last ten, I've come across two differently abled board members. Right. Right. Um, right. And and then that was more in the physical. There were other things, too. But again, that's not a space that people um, um, sort of live in. Right. And so I just think oh, broadening the tent and the table is going right. to have to be something that people do or get left behind. Right. Lucy, think about this. It it took <laughs> uh, executive action to prioritize sign language at White House briefings. Like I sat there watching the sister sign for Joe Biden yesterday and it was a, it was a black woman and it was just like, wow, did it really take this long for us to make sure we could provide this this, uh, adaptation for folks who may, you know, 
uh, be hard of hearing, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so it is these small but very intentional things that we can do. Um, and for those of you who are listening, who may be at the passive or symbolic change, just know you can lean into this work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the point that we're getting across is this is the future. Um, wow. Just like Lucy is making the point about technology, um, that this change, this cultural shift is happening. And yeah. we really invite folks who are intentional and who are uh, rooted in, you know, good intention to um, to work, to, to invite us to work with you um, mm -hmm. wherever you find yourself um, on that continuum, maybe yeah. not in the exclusive category, <laughs> that skill set, but anything passive and above, um, we have skills and amazing experts like Lucy on the team um, that can really support your organization, helping you figure out where you are and helping you figure out how to develop a plan to go forward understanding and accepting its deep cultural work. It mm -hmm. is to your point, Lucy, a circular journey, um, um, not a linear process, uh, nothing that we can uh, kind of check the boxes on. Um, but those of you who are listening and, and may be interested, you can learn more about the work on our website, www.convergeforchange.com. And Lucy, I'm super grateful, not only for that you joined me for this time, but that you're part of our team, you're part of our universe. And thank you so much for all that you've done um, to help us develop here at Converge and all the work you've done with um, the nonprofit organizations you support. It has been a pleasure. It's been awesome. And the one thing I would want to leave folks with is that this is work, but yeah. it's not just work, work. This is not work that you're going to stick in the boardroom or stay in the conference room. This is work that needs to permeate every area of your life. So this is work, work for some, but this is humanity work. This is life work. This is work to be better human beings. Yes. And if that is the shift that is happening and it flows into work in the conference room, well, amazing. But this is work that we just need to do as a humanity um, um, to just Absolutely. Be, to be who we were created to be. Absolutely. Evolve or die. Yes, Evolve exactly. or die is where we are. Thank you for joining us today and um, thanks for all the work you do. And we'll have, we'll have Lucy back on in a few weeks to talk with us more about her work with boards. And over the next few weeks, um, continue to tune in. We're going to break down each aspect of um, an anti-racist organization over the next couple of weeks. And like Lucy said, there are all these places inside of your organization where you can find ways to do this work, whether it's procurement, HR, your board, your programs, your communications. And we're going to cover all of that over the next few weeks. Thanks again, Lucy, for joining us and um, look forward to having you back soon. All right, y'all, that was an amazing um, episode. So thank you so much for joining. Um, next up on Thursday, March 4th, we will return with another live show. We will have Flozell Daniels, um, who is supporting the transition process for the New Orleans District Attorney. Um, this is a episode that was postponed due to the impeachment trial, um, but we'll be talking more with Flozell about the work of the District Attorney um, and what it means for New Orleans to finally have a progressive DA. So hopefully you'll check us out on Facebook Live or join us here back on the Converge for Change podcast for that episode um, after March 4th. Thank you and see you soon. 
All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me today. Wherever you are in the world, I want to hear from you. So stop what you're doing right now. No, really right now. And follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Converge for Change. Now, after you follow me, drop me a line in the comments and let me know what you thought about this show. After that, make sure you've subscribed to the show and your favorite podcast platform. We're growing our tribe of social justice warriors and we want you with us every step of the way. Thanks.